The Cardinals follow up their veteran rotation depth signing with another veteran rotation depth signing? We'll talk Kyle Gibson coming up on B-Shape Daily. What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the evening hours of Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. Lots going on in Cardinals land as the Redbirds got on the board in free agency reportedly on Monday with the Lance Lynn signing. And then Tuesday came the reports of another addition. We'll talk Kyle Gibson today on the show. The Cardinals have since made both deals official with, I'll be darned, it was a press conference at Bush Stadium. John Mosellock getting in front of the microphone. Unfortunately, I was not able to be there because it rubbed up a little bit too closely to the start time for my radio show. And I live a good bit from downtown St. Louis. I wasn't sure how long the press conference would go. I might have been able to squeeze it in, actually, under the gun. But nevertheless, we've reacted to some of the audio from John Mosellock's press conference in a YouTube video earlier today. And if you're a listener of B-Shape Daily on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, it's another reason to subscribe to the YouTube channel because not everything ends up on the Spotify or the Apple Podcast feeds of B-Shape Daily. That's kind of specific to the podcast, but we're branching out from there and YouTube will sometimes have some extra content. And that's what happened today with the video where we just reacted to John Mosellock's press conference kind of a live version of that. I was actually on camera. So go check that out on YouTube and look forward to more of that type of stuff coming to the YouTube channel in the days and weeks ahead. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash at Schaefer 12. But we're going to go over more in depth on our reaction to the Kyle Gibson signing here in this podcast tonight because, well, this is maybe one that a lot of people didn't expect because I think after Lance Lynn signed, Folks thought, okay, you got your innings eater. You got your number four, number five, somebody you can slide in toward the back of the rotation and you can trust them. You've got some veteran presence there in the clubhouse. Everybody could be on board with a Lance Lynn reunion. But I think a lot of fans were hoping that the Cardinals would then aim higher with the subsequent signings or trades, acquisitions in general for this starting rotation. Came in saying, hey, two and a half starting pitchers is what was needed. Really, it's three. I think you're going to get three, Cardinals fans. That's the good news about the Kyle Gibson signing because there was a world in which whatever the the swing man was going to be, the half a starter in Mosellock's previous description of two and a half starters, that guy may not have had the major league pedigree of a Kyle Gibson. And I don't think Kyle Gibson is necessarily coming in here to be a swing man. I don't think Lance Lynn is coming in here to be a guy who's going to be a swing man, a starter slash reliever that gives you a hundred innings. I think both of these guys are going to be kind of penciled into the rotation, but if you're the Cardinals, you're sort of responding in advance to exactly what we say you've got to be ready for every spring. And that's injuries to your rotation with Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn, any injury that might come through You've got, I think, a backup plan already built into what this roster is going to look like. If anything, the Kyle Gibson signing to me says the Cardinals might actually have a better shot than we thought at Yoshinobu Yamamoto. And if they don't get him, I think you could make a very compelling case now, more so than you could before, to go after Blake Snell in free agency, to maybe walk down the road toward a Tyler Glasnow trade. I think those possibilities are very much on the table for the Cardinals, and I want to describe why that is in today's podcast. When you think about this offseason for the Cardinals and the many tasks that lay before John Mosellock in his front office, there's the notion of you need high-end elite pitching because last year's pitching wasn't good enough. But there's also this other thread that we've been harping on constantly, and that is the innings deficit that this team is facing or is going to face if they don't find a way to add a bunch of arms and do so over their short span of one off season. We're going to focus on the innings side of it first in this conversation because that's basically what John Mozeliak and the Cardinals have done as well. I wrote this up on Twitter after the 
reports began to surface on Tuesday about Kyle Gibson. The Cardinals get rid of 101 innings from Adam Wainwright with a 7.40 ERA. They get rid of 81 innings from Dakota Hudson, a 4.98 ERA. 47 innings from Jake Woodford at a 6.23 ERA. And then Jack Flaherty, who was traded at the deadline, no longer here. 109 innings, a 4.43 ERA. I lump those four guys together and come up with about 339 and two-thirds innings pitched. A 5.70 ERA in 61 starts. There were also some relief appearances scattered in there as well to come up with those numbers because Dakota Hudson, Jake Woodford also pitched out of the bullpen at times. And even from a salary perspective, I think roughly that's around $23 million that the Cardinals allotted toward those pitchers in that level of production from them last year. Wainwright was like $17.5 million. A lot of his money deferred. I don't really care about that. I'm just talking about the total outlay of what was on the contract and nothing bores me more than the accounting tricks because I swear to you, one year they'll say, yeah, that counted, Adam Wainwright, that counted in 2023 salary, and then somebody will say, no, the payroll, they, they do it differently. I just don't care. It's all semantics to me unless you really get into some bigger numbers, and I'll let the payroll people figure that out. It just I'm not even dealing with that in this podcast. But my point is you get like $17.5 million to Wainwright, about $3 million for Hudson, a little less than a million for Woodford. Jack Flaherty, I think, was close to like four or five million, whatever it was, but he obviously didn't stay with the team the whole year. Roughly 23 million, give or take, right? We're just looking for approximations here. The numbers to remember 339 innings in a 5.70 ERA in 61 starts, and then about a dozen, Baker's dozen, in terms of relief appearances, mixed in there as well. And then we go to what the Cardinals have added now for 2024. Lance Lynn, 183 and two-thirds innings with a 5.73 ERA. And then Kyle Gibson, a full run better on ERA at 4.73 this past season. 192 innings pitched. And I've seen it floating around there that Lance Lynn led the league in home runs allowed, which he did at 44. Kyle Gibson was the league leader in hits allowed. I don't know the exact number on that, but it was probably a bunch because he had a 4.73 ERA and pitched 192 innings, which you ne- you wouldn't necessarily suspect those two things to go hand in hand, given a lot of times guys with high ERAs with the Cardinals they weren't getting those types of innings workloads because they were being taken out of games as the Cardinals were trying to win and trying to stay in those games, and so. Oftentimes, if a guy was giving up a bunch of runs, he wasn't usually there for the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, the ninth inning. So, Kyle Gibson leading the league in hits. Lance Lynn leading the league in home runs allowed. And I believe Miles Michaelis may have led the league in runs allowed. Another guy who had a higher ERA, 4.78. So, I guess as I was going on that rant about Kyle Gibson getting all these innings, it may have happened on the Cardinals because Miles Michaelis is a great example of it. He led the league in earned runs, and I actually also believe that Miles Michaelis led the National League and the Major Leagues in hits allowed. But in the case of Kyle Gibson, I think he must have been the American League leader. So isn't that something, Cardinals fans? Yep, he he gave up 198 hits, which led the American League. That's Kyle Gibson. Miles Michaelis blew him out of the water, threw an extra nine innings to get over 200, uh, 226 hits allowed to lead not only the National League, but all of Major League Baseball. And those guys are on the same pitching staff next year. So that's one thing that I know is difficult for Cardinals fans to get over. And I think it is worth pointing out for a team that has spent so much time and have caused the writers in this town to spill so much ink and the radio hosts in this town to spill so much effort on the virtual airwaves talking about swing and miss and needing to be better in in the swing and miss department. The Cardinals had the dude who allowed more hits than anyone in baseball last year. And they said, who led the American league in hits? Maybe we could get him too. And Lance Lynn giving up more home runs than anybody else in baseball last year by, I, I think a pretty wide margin allowing 44 dingers. So that's a hell of a strategy to start off the off season. I think it can work. And a lot of Cardinals fans might be pulling their hair out 
and tuning me out right now because you don't want to hear the optimistic take to this. It can work. Is it guaranteed to work? No. And I'm re-referencing back to what I was mentioning at the beginning, talking about this tweet of mine, where you had Wainwright, Hudson, Woodford, Flaherty. Those guys threw 339 combined innings. They're all gone this year. And I would say, collectively, they all were kind of the equivalent of like a number four plus a number five starter. Now, Drew Rahm, I could have thrown into this and would have actually been even a little bit more even Steven in terms of the total starts between that group and then the Lynn Gibson conglomerate, the two guys being added by the Cardinals here. I mentioned 183 innings for Lynn with the 5.73 ERA, the 192 innings for Gibson, 4.73 ERA. That combined is 375 innings and a 5.23 combined ERA in 65 starts for a cost of around $23 million. So essentially what the Cardinals have done is they've consolidated what they got from four guys last year and maybe even five guys if you count Drew Rob, but he's still in the organization, so that's why I didn't include him in this. But you consolidate the production from those four guys, and now it's into two guys. And it honestly cost you about the same in terms of finances because Wainwright was making so much to, to kind of lead the charge with that group in the money category. Now you get Lynn on about $10 million. I've seen $11 million. I've seen, well, it's incentives. Kyle Gibson, I believe, is $12 million for 2024. Both guys have a club option for 2025, but they're making about what that group made last year. And in adding these guys, what have the Cardinals really accomplished? I asked on Twitter, I said, how much better did that really make them? And I think it's fair to ask, especially when you paint it like league leader in home runs, American League leader in hits allowed, joining the National League leader in hits allowed and earn runs allowed. It's like, holy smokes, how is it going to be different? Well, very clearly, you have to have something at the top. And the thing you have at the top has to be explosive. It has to be a head turner. It has to be a huge addition. I don't even know if Sonny Gray is a big enough addition at this point for what the Cardinals have done. Like they have, I'm, I'm trying and I'm straining to figure out ways to describe it appropriately with where the Cardinals are right now. Because again, I started the podcast by talking about the fact that I don't think people saw this one coming necessarily. Kyle Gibson at this stage in his career, maybe five years ago, the Cardinals have always seemingly circled the drain on Kyle Gibson, former Missouri Tiger, M-I-Z, of course. But at 36 years old, you know, he's at the spot in his career where do you always know what the next year is going to bring for a Kyle Gibson? You look at his recent seasons in MLB, he was an all-star in 2021, but was traded midseason to the Phillies and did not perform well for them after starting strong with Texas. 2022 with the Phillies had a 5 ERA, and then this past season with Baltimore had nearly a 5 ERA. Not a strikeout guy, right? Like this, this is adding another Miles Michaelis to your rotation in a lot of ways. After we just got done talking about how you didn't necessarily want to fill your rotation with a bunch of Miles Michaelises because your defense isn't what it used to be, the game as a whole is prioritizing swing and miss and strikeout stuff, and you are woefully behind. I spent like a whole week beating the drum every day saying, hey, 172 pitchers with at least 80 innings. The Cardinals had three of the bottom 13 in strikeout rate. Dakota Hudson, Adam Wainwright, Miles Michaelis, Dak and Wayno were at the very bottom, 171 and 172, respectively, out of 172 MLB pitchers that pitched 80 innings or more. I mean, just no strikeout rate to speak of. And Michaelis was 13th from the bottom, if I recall correctly. Among qualifying starters, only Jordan Lyles was was lower. And I, I better not say that name too loudly because I think he's still a free agent. I think he's out there. Let me double check that. No, is he still with the Royals? Hope oh, I'm hoping the Royals extended him or something. Yeah, okay. He's signed. Oh. All right, everybody take a breath. He's signed. The Cardinals would have to trade for Jordan Lyles, I believe. So maybe the risk there is relatively low. But I'll tell you what, man. To add Kyle Gibson... 
Maybe it raises your floor because, like I said, that group of Wainwright, Hudson, Woodford, Flaherty, and Flaherty was not supposed to be a number four, number five. He was supposed to be better than that, and he wasn't. 4.43 ERA. He was decidedly mediocre. And honestly, when you bake in the expectations and kind of how that turned into his reactions about his performance, and he had many reactions in the clubhouse and in the dugout, et cetera, I think it was a drag on the team. And as a whole, that whole foursome, Wainwright, Hudson, Woodford, Flaherty, was definitely a drag on the team. That's why none of them are here. 5.70 ERA. Now, Lynn Gibson combining for 5.23 ERA is a way to raise your floor. I think that's what I said earlier. Maybe I hope I didn't say lower the floor. I meant to say raise the floor. Because it's better to have two guys throwing those innings and having the quality of those innings be a little bit better than the four guys you had. Firstly, because of roster spots. You can do something with the extra roster spots, and hopefully the Cardinals are going to do something meaningful with them. Maybe get an actual reliever that can be trusted and leveraged, things like that. They can use those roster spots. That's number one. Number two, I think it is valuable for a rotation that's not done building yet. John Moselak said today during the press conference, more moves to come. This is just one day. It's not the finish line in terms of their offseason pursuits. Definitely go back on the YouTube channel and check it out where I said the title of the video reacting to John Moselock's press conference. Check that out if you want to hear the comments. We got most of his presser in that video, at least what I considered to be some of the most important parts. But Moselock reiterating today that it's just one day in the offseason. It's not the end. They've got more to do. And with that in mind, you're a rotation that still seeks something at the top. It has to be at the top. It's almost like John Moselak couldn't possibly show his face if it wasn't at the top, and so that's why I just refuse to believe that the Cardinals are just adding sort of like some bottom feeder type of contracts, which is not to speak to the character of Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson, who I think are great character guys, going to fit well in the clubhouse, going to be huge for veteran leadership. But like we can be honest about what their recent performance was because that's what everybody looks at. They say, well, what would you do last year? And what can we expect you to do this coming year to bolster the rotation, a group that was pretty bad in St. Louis a year ago? And their numbers weren't great. Now, for Kyle Gibson, that's a couple of years in a row where he hasn't been great, right? A 5 ERA in 2022, a 5 ERA the second half of 2021, a 287 ERA the first half of 2021, 2020, 5 ERA, 2019, 480 ERA. 2017, 5 ERA. 2016, 5 ERA. Had a good 2018. But for the most part, he's a guy that's going to be a 4-7 to a 5 ERA. That's what he's been. That's what he's likely to continue to be. That can be your number five starter, I guess. And maybe you can, you know, find another gear with St. Louis. Got The guy that's always my eyes and ears, the grave of Einstein, going to shout him out. I know he's probably listening, pointed out to me that Kyle Gibson made some changes to his repertoire that in August, I'm just going to read from the tweet that he sent me because I trust it. And then I'm going to do a little bit of fun with game logs to, to verify. In August, he was getting blown up a 7.89 ERA in five starts. Orioles nearly doubled his four-seamer percentage, more than halved his changeup percentage, which resulted in a 2.45 ERA in September almost forcing the Orioles to consider him for a postseason rotation spot. So obviously the Orioles ended up making a quick exit, so that wasn't really even a decision that I guess they they had. I don't think they played enough playoff games to even get that far. I could be wrong about that. But checking it out in September, Kyle Gibson did indeed have the 2.45 ERA. Now, the fielding independent pitching was right around his career ERA, 4.69. So did he just pitch into a little bit better luck? Who's to say? But if he can have a pitch repertoire that that vibes with what the Cardinals want to do defensively, and you know he's going to be a guy that gets you six, seven innings a lot more often than what the Cardinals had last year, even if that's seven innings, four runs, don't hear what I'm not saying. Like That's not perfect. That's not the end-all, be-all for this Cardinals offseason. But if your number five is consistently giving you six and a third, 
and seven innings of three, four-run baseball, that will play in a way the Cardinals weren't really experiencing last year. Remember, Wainwright was basically their five, and what would he do? He would be lucky to get through the third, and he would always be giving up six or seven runs. So incremental improvements are what we're seeing so far. Now, why are these deals coming first and not the big kahuna, right? The the Yamamoto. Well, for for his case, I don't think he's been eligible to sign yet. I think that starts actually today or tomorrow that he the, the posting window is opened and he is right around now finally becoming eligible to sign. I don't think it's going to last forever, but there's talk that he'll meet with different teams in December. He's got 45 days since the window opened, which I believe was yesterday. But that would be a big kahuna. Blake Snell would be a big one. It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of necessarily smoke surrounding Blake Snell and the Cardinals lately, but that doesn't mean it's not happening because we wouldn't hear about it necessarily. The Cardinals try to keep these deals under wraps with Lance Lynn. It got reported a day before they announced it with Kyle Gibson. It got reported hours before they announced it. So they were able to keep that relatively under wraps. I got it on some authority that it was known last night that it was pretty much as good as done by certain people in the know, but it was not really public information until earlier today, right before the press conference, which at at that point I thought, well, yeah, they're going to announce both deals at the press conference because a deal doesn't have to be reported for days and and lingering out there for the Cardinals to be eligible to announce it. They would announce, I I mean, they announced news during the press conference that they re-signed Wilking Rodriguez to the organization um, after outwriting him off the 40 man. And I think he requested his release, but then they must have redone a contract with him. So Wilking Rodriguez, not on the 40 man, but back in the organization, a possibility again for the bullpen next season, if he's able to get healthy, but there's Snell, there's Yamamoto. There's maybe Sonny Gray. If you consider him to be on that tier, I think with the two 36 year olds that you just signed, maybe not being so eager to grab another 34, 35 year old, which is unfair to Sonny Gray because the caliber of pitcher he is, I think is, is great, right? I think he could be a really good pitcher. He had a sub-3 ERA last year. He was awesome. But he's very much similar, I feel like, just like a, a a more pricey and probably more productive version of Lynn and Gibson. So at this point, I'm cooling a little bit on the idea that the Cardinals go Sonny Gray because I feel like they've got enough of those kinds of guys. Sonny Gray might be more effective, but he's another veteran, another guy who doesn't, to me, project to have a ton of strikeout rate moving forward. Going to take a look at his numbers here now. I just feel like you got guys like him, even though he's much better than the guys that you currently have. He pitched to a 2.79 ERA last year, and it was legit. If you look at fielding independent pitching, 2.83 was the FIP, and he averaged a K per nine, basically one strikeout per inning pitched. Had 183 Ks and 184 innings, so basically... One-to-one on that ratio. For his career, he's had seasons where he's been better than that. In 2021, he had 155 strikeouts and 135 innings, not a full season. Dating back to, like, 2019, he had 200 strikeouts. So he's done it at times. But for the most part, he's been lesser in terms of K per nine. More around that eight number than the nine or ten number. Trying to find the career stats. He's 7.7 for his... No, he's not. He's 8.7 for his career. So just a little bit below, which is... Again, it's better than what the Cardinals have. Like I said, you look at Miles Michaelis, he's in the sevens probably. Nope, not even. He's 6.6 strikeouts per nine for his career. Kyle Gibson, his Ks per nine was like 7.4 this past season. Lance Lynn, maybe a different story because he, he did have a pretty good strikeout rate. I believe it was... Uh, closer to 10 per nine last year, but it was electric with the White Sox when he was at his worst. It was like down to Miles Michaelis territory when he was with the Dodgers at the end of the season when he was at his best. Pitching better, but not striking out nearly as many. So I don't know if there's some mechanical things that need to go right there. Uh, Grave of Einstein pointed out to me on Twitter some of the uh, things being written about maybe the mechanics of, of Lance Lynn. And if it's a mechanical thing, and you get Yadier Molina as part of the coaching staff, I feel like that is something that could absolutely help Lance Lynn kind of get things back on track. Because in the case of Gibson, 5 ERA is kind of what he's always been. Lance Lynn, 
his 2023 season was bad and it was an aberration. It wasn't what he normally does. It wasn't really, he's never pitched anything like as bad as he pitched this past season until this past season. So I feel like for Lynn, there is plenty of room for optimism to think that he could turn it around. I mean, you look over the last five years or so, I'll read off his ERAs, 2019, 3.67, 2020, 3.32, 2021, 2.69, really pitching better than he ever had, even with the Cardinals during the height of his career with St. Louis, 3.99 in 2022. Last year, it balloons to 6.47 with the White Sox. He trade gets traded to the Dodgers, 4.36 over there, and you can mix that all together to get like a 5.7 ERA for the season. That's one bad year in a 10-plus year career, 12-year career for Lance Lynn at this point in time. So I feel like there is definitely an opportunity for him to kind of reel it back in and get back to his roots of being a really solid pitcher. For the most part, he's never been nearly as bad as he was last year. So bounce-back possibility for him, but still you're thinking, floor, we just need these innings, and we needed four guys to give us a bunch of mediocre innings last year. Now maybe we take these two guys. Is it going to be kind of mediocre? Well, again, they might be toward the bottom of the rotation, but we also trust the veteran presence. Like you're looking at it from the Cardinals' perspective. They trust the veteran presence, and it was something that John Mozalek mentioned today. We talked about it in the video on on uh, YouTube earlier, but I'll kind of paraphrase some of it here. He spent some time talking about not wanting to have to rely upon the young guys to establish themselves. That was sort of the trajectory the Cardinals ended up taking last year by force because when they had some injuries and some underperformance in their rotation, it was like, okay, let's do the usual thing of the young guys that are performing well at Memphis. They're going to get their shot. Well, nobody really was, and they had to kind of scramble. They moved Zach Thompson back to Memphis because they thought, uh-oh, we don't have the starting depth that we thought we we did, and we're going to need – more than we have right now. So we have to turn Zach Thompson midseason from a reliever to starter. Like, that's a move that they made after he was a reliever all through spring training, all through the beginning of the season. They sent him down and converted him midway through to join the rotation effort because they knew that they would need him later on, and they used him later on. They used Dakota Hudson, even though his numbers at Memphis didn't really dictate it. They used Matthew Libertor. He had some good Memphis numbers, but the, the big league transition really wasn't there for him on a consistent basis. So the Cardinals are looking at this entire situation, not only the fact that they don't have anybody at the top of their rotation, but again, they're missing more than half of a of an actual five-man pitching rotation. And they have to figure out ways to fill it within their budget. And I know nobody wants to hear about the budget, and I do think they should be willing to stretch that to 55, 60, 65 million that they could add this offseason. But you also hope that eventually the young players in your organization will develop, right? Like if Zach Thompson's not ready yet, if Graceffo's not ready yet, if McGreevy's not ready yet, Libertor, eventually Drew Rahm, Kloppenstein, Robertson, like some of these guys are going to have to pan out or you you just kind of wave the white flag as a development group and go, we don't know what we're doing. We need to get other people in here who do. That's kind of the way that I would look at it. And if some of those guys eventually do emerge, let's say by 2025, or we they emerge this summer perhaps, but you don't have to rely upon the necessity of those guys emerging and those guys establishing themselves at the next level because you went out and got some cost certainty and some inning certainty with guys like Gibson and Lynn toward the bottom of the rotation. It's what they didn't have last year. It's why you have Andrew Suarez and Casey Lawrence and Jacob Barnes and all the random dudes that they had to bring in at the end of last year to just fill innings, they they don't want to be back in that situation again. And really, they don't want to be back in the situation that necessitated that in the first place because by trading Montgomery, Flaherty, Stratton, and Hicks at the deadline, you obviously worsened an already existing innings crisis. But by that point, they just didn't care about the results and they were just trying to build for the future. So we understood it and it made sense. But with what the Cardinals are doing now is Mosaic saying, we want some certainty. We want he, he used the word sure-handed, bird in the hand. They want to be able to watch to see whether these young guys develop without needing it. And like that's kind of a cop-out because other organizations 
oftentimes like isn't the best way to develop guys by giving them opportunities and and having them show out with the chances they have at the big league level? Sure, but it's almost like when none of them are performing in Memphis, maybe they're just not developed yet or there's a possibility that they're not very good. But that's why you added more of those guys, like the young double-A, triple-A pitchers. You added some at the deadline, and so now you've got a handful of them that will staff your double-A and triple-A rotations. Some of those guys will graduate into your big league bullpen. I think Libertor is definitely a candidate for that because they've tried the starter thing for multiple years in a row. It hasn't worked. What's the thing that they can try and do to get him consistently performing for the team and get some value for the trade that continues to haunt John Moselech every night? That may be the the route that they take in 2024. We'll have to see. But if eventually you want some of these guys to emerge, it's not the worst thing in the world to take one-year flyers for 10 to 12 million because by paying 10 to 12 million, you know you're getting somebody with, with some proven experience. It may not be the best experience in the world, in recent history, because you look at their numbers last year and, you know, they're not getting multi-year contracts at age 36 because they're not performing. If those guys had great years, they probably could get a two-year or maybe even a three-year contract at, at their age because both Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson are 36 years old. But they're settling for one-year deals, but they're doing it early in the free agency period because they're getting to kind of pick their landing spot. John Mozilek talked a lot about both those guys wanting to play for St. Louis and wanting to be a part of this which I think matters, but also when you get into the higher end of the market, it's a little bit of a, of a cop-out for ways to say, well, that's why we didn't, uh, we didn't sign anybody is because they didn't want to be here. It's like, well, how do you know they didn't want to be here? Did you give them an offer? Well, no, we didn't offer on Aaron Nola. That was the report from Derek Gould that the Cardinals didn't get far enough along in that where they even made a formal offer to Aaron Nola. You can't say guys don't want to be here if you don't make them a formal offer. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this at the risk of knowing how stupid I probably sound to John Moselock and his staff. The idea that I would know more about the inner workings of how these relationships are built and how these deals come together is objectively preposterous. They know much more than I do. But it just does get to be to a point where you're like, you know what, what could it hurt to have those cursory conversations, but then have a formal offer. And if they turn it down, they don't like you. Okay. It doesn't like, I do think there might be an element of this where the Cardinals are a little bit too worried about, well, does the guy really want to be here or not? He'll tell you the answer to that by whether he accepts your contract offer or whether he says, we'll do it, but we need more money. I think the Cardinals are just so maybe deathly afraid. And I don't know if that's Moselock's group or ownership or a combination of the two, but there's a fear of like, all right, if we put out a fair offer, but we get rejected because the implication is that we're going to have to really overpay because a guy's like, yeah, St. Louis don't really necessarily feel jazzed to pick them over some of the other cities or, or organizations or whatever the case might be, that maybe the Cardinals like don't want to get into that spot where they have to make a decision of we just got to go above and beyond and, and overpay to get a deal done. The way Moselak talked in the press conference today, he described it as though that's not really a thing that you've, you've got to have two to tango. It takes two sides to make a deal. And the Cardinals were enthused by Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn because they wanted to be St. Louis Cardinals this year. He also mentioned the reason they acted so quickly in this segment of the market, which he doesn't have to say the words, but I can. It's more the bottom half of the pitching market, right? It's the proven veteran on pillow year contracts, one-year deal type of contracts that, yeah, you'll bake in a club option as well, but it's not the upper tier. It's not the upper crust of the free agent pitching market. I don't think anybody would be under the impression that it is. You're not talking about multi-year deals. You're talking about stopgap deals to try and get you to the next station. And the next station for the Cardinals could eventually be some of these young guys developing and, and turning into good starting pitchers at the big league level. So by having a couple of one-year deals, I actually think that could be a benefit to the Cardinals in the flexibility that they have in the future. Like, will they get as much production from Kyle Gibson or Lance Lynn or either one of them as they would have from like a Lucas Giolito or a Michael Waka? I don't know for sure. I would probably put my money toward Giolito and Waka because I think there's a ceiling there that may not exist with Kyle Gibson. There's a ceiling there that even Lance Lynn, who I think does have 
more of a ceiling than Gibson, the ceiling is not to me as high as guys who just did it, right? Like Michael Waka just did it with really good numbers. Lucas Giolito, a little bit of a different story. He didn't just do it, but we've seen it previously in his career, and he's not that old. Lucas Giolito is uh, 29 years old. See, I can say he's not that old because he's how old I am. But Lucas Giolito didn't have a great season, and that's why he's probably not getting a great contract. But is he enough of a of a name, has enough cash, Jay? He had a 488 ERA and was actually good with the White Sox before just falling apart with the two teams that had him toward the end, Cleveland and Los Angeles Angels. 4.88 overall ERA. 2022 was 4.9. 2021, 3.5. 2020, it was 3.4. 3.4 before that, he was an all-star. He had like three all-star caliber seasons, three and a half ERAs three years in a row that established him as a guy who's pretty darn good, had K rates way above nine strikeouts per nine innings pitched in those years, 11.6, 12.1, And even this year, he had a 10 Ks per nine strikeout rate. So Giolito, like you can see what teams would be uh, intrigued by and, and what the allure would be of giving that dude a three-year, you know, $45 million contract, whatever it is. But there's also a downside of like he could just completely flame out just as Kyle Gibson or Lance Lynn could because, you know, Lance Lynn basically flamed out last year. He just did it over 180 innings, and he was able to just take the ball and eat those innings. Cardinals, I think, are at a point where they need some dudes who just are going to take the ball and eat the innings because they're they're tired of what the alternative looked like. And Cardinals fans were tired of what the alternative looked like as well. Now, this could come with a little bit of an adjustment for Ollie Marmel, who I think Cardinals fans believe he has that reputation of he's got a quick hook on guys. I think it isn't that way. I think Ollie would be more than happy to give the ball to a guy who's going to go 6-7. I think he's going to do it with Lynn and Gibson, and you're going to find that out, Cardinals fans. But he didn't have the dudes that could do it last year. Just guys that are, and again, it's not to say that the pitchers complained and won it out of games or anything like that. I just think Ollie, I think Ollie had the guys that he had, and now he's going to have different guys that he can manage a little bit differently. And I believe he will be enthused and eager to manage in the way that he'll be required to manage when it comes to Lynn and Gibson. Guys that are, they give up three, four runs. Yeah, but they're also going to throw 110 pitches and get you through seven because that's what they're here to do. Was Jack Flaherty that kind of pitcher? Mm-mm. Right? Montgomery? Yeah, I think he was. I think he showed that with Texas. And that's where it is a little bit on Ollie to to have that trust in guys and to be able to adapt in that way. But you can also understand it from Ollie's perspective. That season was in the toilet and he was doing everything that he could to try and save it. And so when he does pull a pitcher the way fans may have perceived too early, I think it was out of aggression to try and win that game. And that was maybe not a sustainable mindset that they could have every single day. But I also think they were dealing with the Titanic last year in retrospect. And it was there was nothing... Ollie Warmel was going to do game to game that was going to save it. But I think with the way that he can manage Lynn and Gibson next year, as I squeak in my chair, I think you are going to see those guys dial it up on the innings. And I think Ollie Marmel is going to be there allowing that to happen. And that's why organizationally, like from a philosophical, you talk about philosophical differences, which we'll still do a Mike Schilt video at some point, probably not a full podcast talking Mike Schilt to the Padres, but We'll do a video on YouTube, so subscribe if you want to hear my Mike Schilt becoming the Padres manager thoughts. That'll be something pretty extra, right, that we do. The benefit of the YouTube channel, please do subscribe. But philosophically, to me, the moves that we're seeing would dictate that the Cardinals on field and front office staff are on a similar path of what they want to see this year. They're like, dude, it sucked the way that Jack Flaherty would throw a hundred pitches and maybe get you through five. And then clearly just, you know, he had to come out of the game at that point. It's not that he would ask out of the game, but that was annoying, man. The fact that Wainwright couldn't get through four, that sucked, right? Like he physically couldn't do that because if you try to get him through five, some of those games, he'd have given up 32 runs. Like there would have been no limit. It's like the mean girls line. The limit does not exist. That's what would have happened. Granted he was injured, but like, I think enough of that happened last year that the Cardinals are like, 
What's the exact opposite of what we had to endure? Matthew Libertor occasionally would be that way. Zach Thompson, Dakota Hudson had those types of games. What's the opposite of that? It's Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn. Even if they're not perfect, they're within the budget because, again, they're paying those two guys to do the jobs of four guys from last year, and you've basically not added to your payroll yet. This is why I say the Cardinals are positioned now to go make a splash for a guy like Yamamoto. They got to convince him to come play in St. Louis. And Ben Fred, I think, asked a great question about would you have the room for a $200 million contract? And Moe's answer was, well, does the player want to be here? I don't understand why that's his response. That's not the question. Would the Cardinals spend $200 million if they had the guy that, that was willing to accept that to come pitch here? That's the question. And I think the answer is yes. I think almost Moe's protesting too much was to sort of shroud maybe their level of interest in Yamamoto. Like, again, call me crazy, but is this your response and the way you reflect upon the press conference, Cardinals fans, after we've we've talked through it a little bit? Do you think that their odds are almost even better to get Yamamoto than they were? Because I had it in my head that you were going to sign. Okay, so you'd sign Lance Lynn. That we knew that was coming. But then, like, the other move, if you had to sign a $15 million a year Seth Lugo or Waka or whatever whatever guy you got, I thought it was going to be a little bit more. I thought you were going to maybe have to pay $15, 17000000 million, overpay for the possibility that you were getting a guy on a buy low, but he was going to be superb. Like, if Giolito signs for three years and $51 million, that's just a, a, a number, a guess I'm pulling out of thin air. But if he signs for that in pitches like 2019 Giolito, whoever got him got a great deal, and then they can feel really good about having him for two more years. But if you're the Cardinals... And you've got three spots to fill, whether they want to use the word two and a half or whatever. Like to me right now, the only half pitcher that they have that can be paired with another half guy is Matt's because the last two years, he's really only pitched half the year, but that was one due to a fluke leg injury. And then last year had some, I guess it was various injuries that, that limited him to about a hundred innings. But like to me, Lynn and Gibson are not the guys that are going to pitch you half. They're going to be full ass pitchers that are going to go out there and throw 180-plus innings barring an unforeseen injury. And I think that's by design. I think that's the philosophy that the Cardinals want because it is the mortal opposite of some of the things that they dealt with last year when you just, every single day, it's like, well, who's available out of my bullpen? I don't know who can pitch, but I know we're going to need them all because the starter's going four innings. It's Dakota today. Like, you got to think philosophically with how the Cardinals are trying to fix this thing and from that perspective, I think it's I think they're on the right path. And it doesn't bother me. It's bad for optics, but it doesn't bother me that the moves they've made so far are the bottom of the barrel moves because it, it allows that floor to exist, and now you know what you need. Now you can focus on one type of market in free agency and then decide which trade markets, if any, you're going to focus on. Kind of boggles my mind that Mosellock said today during the press conference that they haven't really dabbled in the trade markets yet. I don't know how that's possible. I, I should think you, you you'd be able to do more than one thing at once. But maybe I'm just, again maybe that sounds stupid to people in front offices and Brendan's the dummy because he's on the outside and doesn't get it that you just don't have the resources to to be able to work on all those fronts at once. My response to that would be get the resources, hire more people if it if that's what it takes. But nevertheless. Moselec's saying, yeah, we haven't really delved into trades. It seems like they had a plan coming in. What do they want to target first? Some some certainty in terms of what they're going to get from the back of the rotation and now work their way forward. And the reason it works is because the two guys they signed, while they may only give you a combined 5 ERA, like I'm going to say that Lynn is better than a 5-7 ERA. If you don't think he is, that's fine. You're, you're welcome to that opinion as a fan of the team. But look at his career and tell me that it looks likely, unless he's just fallen off a cliff, that a 5-7 ERA is coming again. He's not had a 5 ERA but once, and it was over a partial season in 2018. He didn't pitch that well with the Minnesota Twins, pitched better with the Yankees, and so his season ERA was lower. But then that, I mean, that was six years ago. He has since found his groove from 19, 20, 21, 22, four great seasons in a row. I don't know. I think there's a pretty good chance that you get that version of Lance Lynn. Maybe not quite to that level. If you did, 
you don't have to worry about who's your number two. Like, that's the number two in the rotation, what he was doing from 19 to 22. Is 2023 the outlier, or is it a sign of the inevitable decline? Well, that's why the Cardinals are only giving him a one-year deal. They don't know the answer to that either, but I think there's a decent chance that Lance Lynn's in this rotation for 2025. I think he's got something to prove. I think he knows he's better than he pitched last year. I think the world may never understand the full extent of the dysfunction the White Sox were going through, and for Lance Lynn, it, it probably just got to be one of those things where you're sort of going through the motions and just getting through it. And that's the way it looked. He gave up 28 home runs in 21 starts with the White Sox. Now, granted, still had 144 Ks in 119 innings. When he went to the Dodgers, that number went down drastically from 10.8 Ks per nine to 6.6 Ks per nine. That's Michaelis territory. For the year, it makes it 9.4. Which Lynn do the Cardinals get? I think he's going to be more in that, that 9 to 10 range, if I had to guess. But I also think that you probably shouldn't count on that as you're making up your team here. You should you should recognize that there could be a bit of a dip there in his case. You know that Kyle Gibson doesn't strike anybody out. You know that Michaelis hasn't and, and, and isn't going to, right? It's not like suddenly at this stage of his career in his mid-30s, Miles Michaelis is going to turn into a completely different type of pitcher. I think you can basically surmise that he's going to continue to be the pitch-to-contact oriented guy that he's always been. That's 60% now of your rotation recognizing that it did provide you some level of certainty in feeling comfortable with what you're going to get day-to-day and week-to-week from those guys, where's the upside going to come from in this rotation? I honestly think that it's coming from somebody at the top that the Cardinals are still yet to get. A lot of Cardinals fans, I don't think, are that enthused by what we've seen, and they don't see the thread of why this actually implies the Cardinals have a better shot at now landing a big fish. To me, it's work backward, do the easiest thing first. They've done that for $23 million combined. If they've got 60 or so million to play with, that leaves 35 to $40 million to play with. Even if it's a, I need a more conservative estimate, $30 million to play with, you can sign somebody for $25 million a year and that pitcher can be really good. Like, I don't know if you're quite getting Blake Snell for that amount, but I think you can get somebody for $25 million per year and be in a good spot. And maybe the answer to that is Tyler Glass now, because at this point you have the certainty of innings angle covered. That's kind of what Sonny Gray would have been, but a more expensive version of Lance Lynn. And yes, a more productive version of Lance Lynn. That's why you would have been more expensive, but could Sonny Gray regress a little bit and could Lance Lynn get back to what he was at other points in his career? If that happens, they're basically the same pitcher in terms of productivity, one of them's getting a three-year, probably a maybe even a four-year deal for 75, 80, 90 million. The other one is getting 10 million on a one-year contract and having to prove himself. The Cardinals could end up being on the right side of history with that angle. But what it does mean to me is I wouldn't sign Sonny Gray. I wouldn't have said this previously because I thought, hey, if you just need some certainty, you can kill two birds with one stone. Sonny Gray can be like a top end of the rotation guy, not maybe your number one, but a good number two. And you also feel like he can be reliable. Those are the two things that you'd be looking for. They've got reliability at the bottom. Now I I think you shoot the moon. You say, make Yamamoto tell you no. $200 million needs to be nothing to the Cardinals over seven years. Again, Mozeliak kind of squirmed when he was asked the question. He said, well, it depends on the term, of course, and whether the guy wants to pitch your... That's not what I asked. <laughs> That's what I wish Ben Fred would have said. That's not the question. Is it within the realm of possibility that y'all can spend $200 million? That's the question. I think the answer is yes. Six years, seven years, whatever it ends up being. If it's a $30 million annual salary, that does stretch them right up to the, the budget. But who cares? I think they'd be willing to do it because that's what they've set themselves up to do. Blake Snell would be another great example. And you say, well, Blake Snell doesn't throw a bunch of innings. That's okay. The innings that he throws are going to be great, right? He won the Cy Young without throwing a ton of innings, uh, as many as his peers, and was basically unanimous in doing so. He strikes out everybody. He also walks a lot of guys, but he strikes out everybody. His stuff is ridiculous. You need a stuff candidate at the top of the rotation. I think the Cardinals can get him in free agency. I think they're I think they're trying to get Yamamoto. I really do. Whether it happens, I can't say. I don't have any idea. But I think they, at this point, 
they have set themselves up where if they fail at the top of the market, then they can pivot maybe to the trade market. Dylan Cease can be a great option. I thought the Cardinals rotation would have looked a lot better if, if Dylan Cease was your number two. But at this point, I, I think he could end up being your ace with Michaelis and and Mats and Lynn and, and Gibson behind. There's another scenario where maybe the Cardinals can make a couple of trades. Maybe they make the free agent signing that pushes them right up against their budget. Snell, Yamamoto, maybe it is still Sonny Gray, which it would make the team better. I think I think you wouldn't maybe have the upside in, in terms of strikeouts that you'd be maybe needing to contend the way the Cardinals fans want to see this team contend, but it gives you a chance because Sonny Gray is a good pitcher. But again, you don't need that certainty of innings from a guy like Gray because you've you've kind of got that in the middle to the back end of your rotation. So take a shot on the top end guy, which now could be a Tyler Glass now trade. And that would still be an interesting one because the money would factor in and that would be kind of the way they would get to that $200 million budget. It would be a little bit scary because he's only ever thrown 120 innings and maybe the two and a half really does have to become three and a half because I don't know if the Cardinals knew they were going to be able to land both Gibson and Lynn within their price point. But if they do that and then it's 20 to 25 million, whatever it is for glass now, and then they maybe sign a, a, a Drew Verhagen type of contract for a swingman that can pair with Glass now or Mats or whoever maybe ends up needing it based on injury because that's just kind of the way that the Cardinals are talking about having to plan. Maybe that's something that could work out now. Maybe the maybe the half is like a Tyler Glass now because you're picturing him as a guy you're only getting a half a season from, but you think the half a season that you get is going to be great. I still think it would be wonderful to see the Cardinals go out and get two guys, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think you're going to get one, but I think he's going to be a quality pitcher. And if he's not, we will be talking about on B-Shape Daily how the Cardinals don't have enough. I think the guy that they go out and get has to be the best pitcher on the staff, bar none. I think there are a number of names that would qualify as that. Yamamoto would, Snell would, Glass now I believe would. Sonny Gray probably would. You'd be maybe a little bit underwhelmed by that one, but I think you, again, you have a fighting chance. I don't think that you project as a top 10 rotation or even maybe a top 15 rotation, but there are ways that it could break in your direction. If Sonny Gray is your guy with Michaelis, Mats, Lynn, Gibson, put those in whatever order you want. It doesn't really matter. And then maybe that's where the the sixth, seventh, and eighth starters like Libertor like Graceffo, like Zach Thompson come into play, you have a fighting chance. I think you need somebody with maybe even more upside than Sonny Gray. Dylan Cease would be the name that I circle if it's a trade. Again, I think it would have been better if you had a one-two punch. All the best teams typically do. Maybe there's a world where Lance Lynn bulldogs his way into being that. Maybe Miles Michaelis refines some of the success that he had before last year because he's been a good pitcher before. His numbers just were terrible last year. So, like, there's a world in which I could see it kind of coming together, but you're having to hope on hopium a little bit on some of the things that have to break in your direction, and it kind of feels like that's what burned the Cardinals last year. So I can understand the skepticism from fans who would say, you're you're still hoping on guys to do stuff that they haven't recently done. It's not all that dissimilar to what you did last year, and that didn't work out very good at all. But I think because they have Lynn Gibson in the fold, you can be a little bit more aggressive and singularly focused on getting a dude to be the top of your rotation. Because if you have a dude at the top, it makes Miles Michaelis look better as your two. It makes Lance Lynn look better as your three. Everybody kind of slots in more appropriately. You do still have to worry about Stephen Matz to me of whether he's going to pitch enough innings to get, you know, to, to count and qualify as a full rotation spot. But that's really true of everybody else too. Because I say every year, Somebody's getting hurt in spring training. It always happens. That's why it would be great to see the Cardinals like really be aggressive. Like it might strain their budget a little bit. But what if Sonny Gray was only twenty three million? Or what if you were really willing to strain it and and you probably are out of the, the Yamamoto sweepstakes for what I'm about to say? And the Cardinals, and again, I want to stress that this is not how the Cardinals view it, because I think they're viewing the trade market as a secondary option, unless they're just throwing out a big smoke screen, they haven't really engaged much in it, which I think is a mistake. The trade market can move on without you. So if you're the Cardinals, 
and Dylan Cease can be an option, try to figure that out. But I think they're very reluctant to even engage in the conversations that could lead to trading a Brendan Donovan or a Nolan Gorman or, you know, any of the players that they don't really want to move. But it may be necessary to dip your toes into those waters and see. But the scenario I'm about to paint, I think, would still be within budget and it would make you really, really competitive next year. It would basically turn Steven Matz into like the half a starter that you're ready to have fill in if and when necessary. And it would also mean you're paying your rotation a lot. I want to mention that too. For Cardinals fans that are like, you got to pay, you got to pay your rotation. They're too cheap. The Cardinals paid their rotation last year. I think it was one of the most expensive rotations in baseball. Everybody in it, including Hudson, was making multiple million dollars. So it's not that they're not willing to pay, but they're not willing to develop a couple of guys who are cheap at the same time as they go out and and pay for somebody who's actually elite. Instead, they end up with a bunch of guys in the middle, and that's sort of what you've seen and and maybe what you're going to see again this year. But I'm going to say $10 million to Lynn, 12 to Gibson. I think the the extra $1 million for Lynn comes from probably a buyout maybe for 2025. Maybe that's part of it. Whatever, $22, $23 million. It doesn't really matter the difference. It's negligible. Let's say out of Yamamoto because he's going to be closer to $30 million per year. But you get Blake Snell. You get his 2.25 ERA. You get his 234 strikeouts in 180 innings, which again was basically tying a career high for him. And maybe we don't see that level of innings from him next year, which is why I don't think he makes the money that Yamamoto or even Nola made. Nola was 7172, right? In terms of his contract. Maybe on an average annual value, Snell gets in that range, but it's probably not a seven-year deal. What if it's a $27 million per year over five or something like that? Like, I was thinking $25 million over six. Would that be, he might even make a little bit more than that. That'd be six and 150. Let's do it for the sake of argument, though, because that allows the Cardinals to spread it out a little bit more even. So $25 million, and honestly, they can backload it if they really wanted to. If you're really worried about cash flow and the money for 2024's payroll, not going over $200 million or just barely sneaking over it and you've got your budget, let's say it's $25 million, but they with the knowledge that they could also backload it a little bit to take off some of the sting at the beginning of the deal. But let's say they don't. It's $25 million, 10 for Lynn, 12 for Gibson, that's 47, which is within range. Now, you would maybe need to add to the bullpen, but I've talked a lot about the fact that I don't think spending on relievers is ever the answer. Quantity over quality would be my play. Just be the organization that identifies which pitchers are good and which ones are going to have good relief pitching seasons. Do whatever the Dodgers do because they pulled they pull diamonds out of the rough each and every year. They go non-roster invite, to Shelby Miller, and then he's great until he gets hurt. Like, find those guys. You tried last year with Wilking Rodriguez and Guillermo Zuniga and Connor Thomas, and the list could go on. None of them were good. None of them contributed to the extent that you needed them to. Figure it out for this year, which guys are going to fall into that bucket, and make them be good. That's the part that's not my job to identify. It's the Cardinals' job. Like, I don't have opinions on which guys it should be, Because if I did, and they were correct opinions time over time, then I would be working in the front office, but I'm not. That's their gig, right? Figure out who those guys are across baseball. Scan every team. There's going to be teams that, non-tender guys, there are going to be teams that, you know, let go of players that you go, oh, that's the diamond in the rough. That's their job. Figure out who those guys are. That's how you fill your bullpen. Don't spend a bunch of money on it. And trade for Dylan Cease anyway. Blake Snell. Dylan Cease, I think Cease will make eight to ten million, something like that. Let's say it's ten. Boom, that's fifty-seven. You spend three million on a, on a couple of relievers because you you guarantee the non-roster invitee guys a million and a half if they make the roster. Boom, you you. I'm not going to say you fix the bullpen because quantity over quality can lead you to have a season like last year where all the quantity didn't contribute and you were kind of left upstream without a paddle. But the boom comes from you've spent $60 million. Let's say that's about what you have to spend. And if I have too high of a number, 
the build a wit grandchildren trust can get over it and that's just what you spend you perils 207 instead of 202 that if that's what it takes you can make that happen if you're the cardinals and if it's not blake snell it's sunny gray and it's even more in your budget because i don't think he'll cost 25 or 27 he might be more like 23 aav but let's live in the world where it's Snell because it fits so darn well with what they've done over the past couple of days getting Gibson and Lynn. Snell for 25 is your number one. Cease for 10 is your number two. I guess I don't really know what Cease's salary is going to be. I should look it up. It looks like MLB Trade Rumors has him at $8.8 million. Let's call it 10 just for the sake of argument, just to be conservative. Because when you look at it that way, you still have the room financially and player personnel-wise because you haven't made any other trades. So you can do it. It may cost you guys you don't want to trade. But I'm 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 unloading any pitcher in this organization if I'm getting Dylan Cease, knowing that I've also signed Blake Snell and I'm going for it in the prime years still of Goldie and Arenado and with all the up-and-coming talent they have offensively. While Wilson Contreras is still in his prime as a hitter, like if that's what we're looking at, I think you trade any pitching prospect in the organization full stop. There's not a name. What about Tink Hens? He's in the trade. What about Graceffo? He's in the trade. If you're telling me that the Cardinals are getting a rotation that consists of Snell for 25 to 27 million over a five to six year deal. Dylan sees for $10 million and then another year of ARB eligibility in 2025 as your number two. And then we'll go Miles Michaelis, three, Lance Lynn, four, Kyle Gibson, five, Steven Matz when one of those guys gets injured. Yep, now you're paying six guys again. I know it sucks, but that's what you have to do when you don't develop pitchers and the Cardinals haven't developed anybody in years that has been able to become a staple in their rotation. So that's the price you pay if you want to stay competitive. Now you have to pay for it on the pitching side. And you can say, well, if you keep trading away the Tink Henses and the Graceffos, then you're going to, yep, I hear you. That's the situation that they're in, though. The, the ones that you do think have promise to really go for it, that's where you got to live. So if you had Snell, Cease, and yeah, it probably cost you Gorman to whatever. You're just getting the trade done, right? You're You're having the rotation that can legitimately contend. Imagine going into a playoff series with Snell and Cease as your one and two. That'll play. Imagine getting through the regular season with Michaelis throwing 200 innings from the three spot, Lance Lynn throwing 180 from the four, Kyle Gibson throwing 185 from the five, and their ERAs are, I mean, Gibson 4.5, that's reasonable. Go from 4.7 to 4.5 because you move to a pitcher's park. For half the games, okay, let's call it that. Lance Lynn, he could have a four ERA. I know he just had a five seven ERA. How many times has he done that in his career? He's going to be motivated, move to a pitcher's park. That'll help with the home runs. Call it four. Michaelis can have a four ERA, and it can even be better than that. We know that it can be because we've seen it happen before. But three innings eaters and then two dudes, absolute dogs atop your rotation, and one of them is going to get hurt. And that's where Steven Matz comes in. He showed he can pitch well out of the bullpen. He's veteran, so I think he could handle it in terms of, hey, this is what the team needs from you this year. You need to just be flexible. Be the swing man. I honestly think the Cardinals would be a force to be reckoned with. Do they see that? I think they do. I don't know if they can stretch to the point of getting both Snell and Cease. I think they could make a Cease trade. I think they could make a Gilbert trade if they really wanted to go crazy. More likely, it's going to be a lesser name that you trade for, but somebody that's got some control. I also think they could do a free agent signing of a guy like Sonny Gray that's like more more of a, an attainable guy to get than Blake Snell. But go like throw that offer to Blake Snell and just make sure he says no before you say, well, he's got to want to come here. Until a guy's got a formal offer in hand, I don't think the front office should be able to use, well, he's got to want to come here as an excuse. Why do you have to get to know the player? Why do you have to date the player before you just say, hey, dude, you pitch really well. Can we throw you a bun bunch of money? I know that that's how the Cardinals operate. They have to know everything about a guy because they want to make sure they're investing in someone they want to be investing in. But I think the Cardinals might have to lower that threshold a little bit this year to say, we're not going to be able to have 
three dinner dates with every free agent starter to know that he's a fit for the organization or whatever. Look at his numbers. Know he's awesome. Do your research a little bit, but then just offer the contract. If he doesn't take it, he doesn't take it. But then you know. Then you know he didn't want to be here. The thing where they didn't offer a contract to Aaron Nola, like, okay, they were clearly working on some other stuff. And before they could even get that far down the road with Nola, he was already anxious to get back to the Philadelphia Phillies. And so that's what happened. But there are still big names remaining on the market. The Cardinals need to be offering contracts to the majority of them, in my opinion. And then view the trade as a luxury. If you if you offer and get a big free agent signing on a multi-year contract, it probably does take you out of glass now unless Bill DeWitt sees what we see and says, eh, what's, an, what's $20 million over budget one year? Because then he's gone in free agency the next year. But if you can have a trade candidate be the number two, Mm. What do you think, Cardinals fans? I think it would make them great. How likely is it? Probably not the likeliest thing in the world, but I do think they're going to check in and and do at least their research on Yamamoto and try to get a seat at that table. Lars Newpark can help them. I, I think they should be interested in Blake Snell. I'm not entirely sure. I still could see him being interested in Sonny Gray. And then I think they pivot to trades if they don't succeed. I don't think they navigate both of those things at once. Cardinals fans wish they would. I think they should, but it doesn't seem to be the way that it's necessarily going to go. But I do think today's moves to bring in Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson do actually lead me to believe the Cardinals are going to be more equipped to land a big free agent star like Yoshinobu Yamamoto. We'll see what happens, but let me know, Cardinals fans. This has been an over-hour-long podcast, a lot to get into, a lot that I meant to get into. I didn't even bring up the name Alec Manoa. I think if you sign a free agent like Snell or Sonny Gray or Yamamoto, you can still trade for Alec Manoa and not have to have expectations that he's into your rotation right away, that it could be a bit of a rebuild. Get Yadier Molina's hands on him in spring training and see what happens. I think they should. I I would trade Carlson for Alec Manoa. I like Dylan Carlson, but I think if that is a deal that's available to the Cardinals and maybe you have to throw in an arm of of some variety, I think those are the types of creative moves the Cardinals should be looking at. Not to say that he would be your number five. No, that's the beauty of getting the Lynn and Gibson types. You can then afford to dabble in some markets where the guys you're getting, they may not have to be in your on-paper starting five. If the Cardinals can get creative, I still think the moves that were made this week will serve them really well. If they're the only moves, you're going to have problems. Let me know in the comments below what you think, Cardinals fans. That's going to do it for this edition of B-Shape Daily. Plenty more Cardinals content to come on this channel and on the B-Shape Daily feeds on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace.